Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. PrattWhitney.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and along with my co-host, Chris Chimes, I'd like to welcome you to this week's program. We had some good chatter from our discussion with Helene Becker last week, and we're working on our next guest to join us soon. Ben, I'll second that. We continue to get great feedback from our listeners, so please keep those questions and comments coming. In the meantime, let's turn to a little Airlines Confidential News. Last week, we had a great conversation with Helene Becker, a senior financial analyst at Cowan Research, and she was speaking very positively about the constructive way that management and labor has worked together during this pandemic with the hope that the cooperative spirit would continue. I don't think Helene meant to jinx that situation, but we now find ourselves watching a growing situation between American Airlines and the Allied Pilots Association over the holy grail contract scope. In this case, there are two clauses in question from the existing contract reached in 2015, international block hours and the percentage of regional jets and the domestic fleet. American and APA negotiated an agreement to compensate pilots for the shortfalls and furlough protection through 2022, but it requires the approval of the APA board, which, as we were recording, was deadlocked 1010, according to published reports. An APA spokesman was quoted as referring to scope as their, quote, Bible, and that, quote, the common bond we have as pilots is that when it comes to scope, we operate from a distrust of management. Without an agreement, the pilots union has the ability to block certain code share agreements for American. And American's newest code share partner, JetBlue, was working through a scope issue of its own with its pilots. And that matter is expected to go to arbitration in May. So Ben, is this something industry watchers should be concerned about or is the typical posturing as negotiating parties seek leverage? Well, Chris, I thought this was really interesting. In the class that I teach at George Mason, this is the week we're talking about airline labor. And we've specifically talked about scope clauses and what they mean and what they do. And then I saw this story. So I immediately sent those quotes from the APA representative to my whole class and said, it's, it's, uh, it's real stuff we're talking about here. This is really happening. I think this is really important. Scope clauses in collectively bargained agreements matter a lot, obviously. They define what work is covered by the contract. And there's been a long history of airlines trying to skirt the scope clauses and do things that they're not really allowed and other things. And so I can understand why at a place like American, there's an uncomfort with this idea. And when flying is down, it's hard to meet some of those objectives. And uh, I don't think that industry watchers should be surprised that when scope is at hand, there's strong emotions on both sides. I don't think that's surprising. 
What I think is a little surprising is sort of the severe situation the industry's in and what it means to sort of get things going again. Now, if you're a pilot in American, I can see you say, well, fine, I get that. But this is not the time, you know, to be sending our code to other airlines who who are using pilots not covered by our contract. I understand their point on that. My guess is that this is a leverage play. One of the statements that was made is what the company is offering is not enough for us to accept this deal. So basically they said, you need to give us a little bit more. I think the story said that they had improved some disability pay or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was, but basically they said it wasn't enough. So I think this is negotiations. I'd be surprised if it doesn't work itself out, but I'm not surprised it sort of come to an issue because you know, when you have leverage in a negotiation, that's when you work to get what's best for your side. Scope is a real important thing for all pilots. Actually, not just pilots, flight attendants, mechanics, everybody covered by by collectively bargained agreements in this industry. So I'm, I'm eager to watch this one, although I think it will get resolved. It'll probably end up meaning American has to do a little bit more for their group, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear who's got the leverage, uh, and it's the pilots. Mm-hmm. Notwithstanding the fact we've been through this horrible year and management has done a tremendous job to preserve jobs and also to keep the company on track and do as much flying as they possibly can. I mean, we've talked a lot about the need to reduce capacity during this period. And so it's going to trigger a bunch of things like the situation we're in, but scope and that term and that concept is just such an emotional uh, reaction. It's almost like, you know, nails on a chalkboard with regard to how labor leaders and rank and file react to things. And so both parties are, are, are putting a lot of work into this, but I don't think they're finished. I think that's right. If I can say one more thing, and I don't want to get any pilots mad at me about this, I think they'll actually agree with me on this. I used to call the 50-seat regional jet the airplane that Alpa built meaning that, uh, that that airplane became real popular in the 1990s and, and into the 2000s, in part because airlines could fly that quite honestly nicer product than turboprops with regional operators because that size airplane was out of scope, right? It was below the sizing threshold that the scope clauses put in place. And the way airlines and the industry reacted to that was to create a really nice product under there. And I'm sure there are some pilots who say, you know, we don't really like those really nice EMB, you know, uh, airplanes, Embraer airplanes and, and Bombardier airplanes flying around our passengers with, with these pilots. But that's sort of what's happened. And they see that happening in the industry. They've seen that happen and realize that, you know, the, the scope that protects them when things aren't in scope, airlines take advantage of that too. And that's probably goes toward that distrust in a way too. It's unfortunate. And I hope that Helene's longer term view of labor and management working better together still ends up holding. Yeah, this has been an, uh, an enormously challenging year for the industry and labor, but also an emotional one. And so I think there's it's just kind of spilling over a bit. And I, I think they'll get a deal, but uh, they got to go back to the table. 
We'll have some more news to cover in a moment, but Airlines Confidential would first like to welcome our new sponsor, Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. That's like Pratt & Whitney geared turbofan, pwgtf.com. Ben, there was also lots of chatter this past week about the introduction of the Frontier Airbus 320neo with a new seat that will be installed on the 150 or so new Airbus aircraft Frontier will be taking through 2027. These seats by the German manufacturer Recaro are 30% lighter than current seats and are part of the carrier's pledge to be America's greenest airline. The fuel savings from the seats will average 31.6 thousand gallons per aircraft per year as the carrier continues to identify ways to reduce its carbon intensity. From the photos, the seats are sleek but somewhat spartan, although Frontier says they are, quote, more comfortable and provide more workspace for passengers. Recaro is a major aircraft supplier and they're highly regarded. Since I haven't sat in them, I can't confirm the more comfortable pledge. And some of the reviews are in the range of they're okay but they don't offer features that travelers have come to want like power outlets. Ben, we can't solve the comfort thing here on this podcast. And frankly, I've sat in some uncomfortable first-class seats too. To their credit, Frontier made the seat debut about so-called comfort, fuel efficiency, and their commitment to sustainability. There was no discussion about jamming in more seats or changing the pitch. So my question is, more about, are there going to be more of this kind of thing in the industry as carriers work to reduce emissions and their carbon footprint. The airline manufacturers are using lighter weight composites for the fuselage, but what else on the inside of the cabin can get lighter? I thought it was great the way Frontier spun this story in a sense. You know, not that long ago, Spirit Airlines, similarly, I don't, I don't know if it's the same seat, but they had an announcement about their new seat, creating more room for customers and being lighter weight. I think this is a good thing. Airlines like Frontier and Spirit usually put as many seats on the plane as the regulators will let them put in. And so normally the pitch, you know, how much space each passenger has in front of them is a little tight. But with this new seating, it does create more room for passengers. And that's, that is a positive thing. And they are lighter weight. So I think the idea of really pushing the positives, more room for customers, comfortable. And like you said, Recaro's a good name in seats. They have a reputation here too, as a manufacturer who produces comfortable seats. <laughs> and so they, I'm sure they put that idea into this product, but tying it all up into this commitment to sustainability is a real positive thing. Frontier has staked out this position as America's greenest airline. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what else they can do Toward that end, I think finding ways to lighten the airplane is a good way to help with sustainability. The lighter the plane is, the less fuel it needs to burn. Maybe there's ways to think about 
galleys and seats and everything and overhead bins and everything in ways to lighten things up. And I'm sure Airbus, Boeing and others are thinking about those kinds of things. Like you said, the planes themselves are getting lighter weight with more composites. And that's a real positive thing. The other thing that's good about all these is the simpler the seat and my looking at this suggests it's a quite simple seat also means that it'll probably be a lower maintenance cost seat because it probably doesn't have as many parts so it won't break as often. And customers don't think about this that much. I'm sure many of our listeners do. Those seats break fairly often on airplanes. And when a seat is broken, either the airline has to take some time to get it fixed or the plane flies for a short while with a seat with them not being able to sell that seat while it's broken or something. And by broken, I mean it may not recline properly or something may be off in it. And so I think it's good that the industry is moving toward these newer, more sustainable, lighter weight products. And I agree with you that using this kind of language is really good for the industry. I have to question too, Ben, how important things like power outlets are moving forward. Everyone's got their personal battery packs and half the time the power outlets don't work or certain aircraft don't have them. And so business travelers kind of come prepared anyway. So I, I think, you know, simple is, is uh, the key here. And we've talked about previously too, the simpler you make things, the better you can meet expectations. And so um, it seems like that's, that's the direction they're going and ho- hopefully they are more comfortable, but um I, I was very impressed by the way they rolled this out. We've got one more news item to discuss, but first we'd like to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com airlines. Finally, Ben, on the news, we've been talking about the Sun Country and Frontier IPOs. Sun Country certainly took no prisoners with a very successful market response and price surge last week. And they were able to use the proceeds to repay its entire federal loan from the first tranche of the COVID relief bill last year. And Frontier is getting pretty aggressive in its share pricing, which goes to market on Tuesday, March 30th, and after we are recording this broadcast, by the way. So, Ben, why do you think Sun Country exceeded expectations in such a big way? Well, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think that a year after a pandemic, while travel demand is still uncertain, that it'd be the perfect time for investors to sign up to buy an airline. But I think, as we've talked about in earlier shows, too, these two IPOs really, really stress how much investors believe that low-cost airlines are better positioned in this environment. Carriers like Sun Country, now a public company, and Frontiers, soon to be a public company it looks like, are the kind of carriers that don't carry a lot of business travelers. So if business travelers aren't flying as often for the next few years because of work at home or because of CFO saying just use Zoom, right? You know, we don't have to pay for the yep. trip anymore. Or people's own, you know, skittishness with with flying very often. If business travel doesn't return as much, these are the kind of airlines that aren't really losing anything because they've not carried that. Plus, these are the kind of carriers that don't 
have wide body equipment, which are very expensive and especially dependent on business travel to make them really work given their high cost to, to acquire and high cost to operate. So the, the simplicity of these business models is really appealing to investors. And so it doesn't surprise me that Sun Country, which has really shown a lot of flexibility. I mean, they had basically a period of time where they almost weren't carrying any passengers at all, but were flying a lot of cargo around for Amazon and others. To an investor that says, well, look, here's a company that can that can pivot when it needs to and figure out how to make money with its assets, even when demand isn't as high. And Frontier is, you know, seeing the aggressiveness that carriers like Spirit and, and JetBlue and others in, in Southwest in this space have been very aggressive. We've talked about that a bit in this podcast, too. And so I'm not surprised that uh, Sun Country was, had a successful IPO, and I expect Frontiers will be successful as well. Investors who believe that airlines should exist and believe that people will travel by airlines are thinking for at least the next couple of years, low cost airlines is where most of the growth and investor returns are going to be. Yeah. I mean, Sun Country almost uh, used the past year as validation and gave them momentum. I don't know if they would have had that same halo effect if they had waited a year for this IPO. So, I mean, I, I think their success, as you pointed out, in pivoting and taking advantage of opportunities during this pandemic was fresh on the mind of investors and it impressed a lot of people. I agree with that. Both of these airlines also can tout the fact that they have good seasoned, experienced management. Sun Country owned by, you know, a very successful private equity group, Apollo Global. And Jude Bricker, their CEO, is a veteran of Allegiant Airlines, so knows low cost really well. On the Frontier side, they're owned by Indigo Partners, the group that owned Spirit Airlines. When they went public, their CEO is an ex-Spirit veteran, Barry Biffle. And so these are these are sort of known quantities to investors as well, too. Not just that they like the models, but they know the people behind the models and have confidence that they can execute against those strategies well. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. My guess is Seabury might have given either Sun Country or Frontier some help too, Chris. I'm thinking so. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Ben, as we get into our listener questions, uh, some feedback from last week's discussion with Helene Becker. Uh, Nick from Washington, D.C. wrote with a comment slash question about Helene's point on pilot retraining. Guys, I'm new to the show, but I'm really enjoying it so far. 
I wanted to comment on a statement your guest, Helene Becker, made in your last show. She said that it takes an entire year to retrain a pilot after furlough. I believe she's conflating different issues. Retraining a furloughed pilot generally takes two to three months at most, and that is only if the pilot requires a full long-term training event, which many do not. A rule of thumb generally used by airlines is that after furlough pay, cascading displacements, and training costs, it is usually not cost-effective to furlough a pilot unless you expect them to be out for at least 12 months. I was surprised by your statement, but I suppose from a financial standpoint, it might be easy to conflate the two issues, cost versus training footprint. Ben, can you kind of walk us through this? Yeah, I think Nick is exactly right, actually. When Helene said that, it sounded long to me. I uh, I understand pilot training and what it takes, but I thought she must be thinking, she must have been thinking about the whole process of maybe even going through the type rating of the airplane or something, or maybe she didn't realize that that wouldn't have to happen again or something. But her point generally was it takes time to retrain. So I sort of let the one year comment go by the side and did it that way. But Nick's exactly right. I think his two to three month timing is generally at most. And the reason that unions and airlines were hip to hip on this issue with the government of you've got to do the payroll support is to not let it take a long time. To, the, in fact, the words keep the keep the employment base current. You heard that term regularly throughout the discussions around should there be support for the airline industry or not. And so I think all of that was related. And Nick's right. Helene's right that it takes some time to retrain. And that's got to be thought of in the whole thing. But Nick's right that it's not a year it's more like, you know, a couple of months, I think. Yeah, I, I when I heard her say it and then when Nick flagged this, and I went back and listened to the tape, I, I, I think she was talking more about the cascading results and kind of like it takes a year to kind of wash through this process, not necessarily a year of training for a particular pilot. But uh, Nick, thanks for the call out. Uh, it's good to keep us honest and uh, we appreciate your uh, joining us as a new listener. And then, Chris, we had a follow-up from Tanya, who raised some important questions about diversity in the cockpit last week. Ben and Chris, thanks for taking my question last week. While we're on the topic of diversity and inclusion, do you care to address the situation reported in the news this week about the Southwest pilot and his vulgar and hateful discussion that was picked up on the open mic with ATC on his approach at San Jose, California? This kind of open hostility can make the cockpit very uncomfortable. How is that okay? Frankly, we need both the airline and union leadership to be vocal about these kinds of incidents and make it clear that it's not okay. Tanya, thanks for the follow-up. I'm with you. Uh, this isn't okay. I know for certain my colleagues in the office would be very surprised if I let loose with that kind of a rant. And uh, the cockpit shouldn't be no different. Uh, I, I get that the folks in the cockpit are kind of in a bubble, but but he could have just as easily been screaming about ethnic or racial groups in the Bay Area or the LGBT community. So it's not like this guy stubbed his toe and let out an F-bomb or got caught in, up in the moment of some intense situation and lost his cool. Uh, it just seems like he was on an 
an unprompted rant with a colleague in the cockpit. And not to mention, <laughs> he doesn't like Hyundai cars. What that has to do with anything, I didn't quite understand either. So to your question, I, I don't think we should make an indictment of anyone other than the pilot who was caught on tape. He's the only one responsible, but the tone is set at the top and leaders need to make it clear it's not okay to be ranting and disparaging categories or classes of people. I would have liked to have seen both Southwest and the union have been a little more vocal in making it clear that this kind of behavior won't be tolerated. You know, Southwest, I, I was kind of surprised. They kind of mumbled through the response I saw, but it doesn't reflect their values, but they'll address this internally. I get that they want to take this offline and not make this a news story, but we need to be very precise in saying this isn't appropriate behavior and get to the front of the question. You know, Chris, we teach our kids all the time about integrity and integrity is doing the right thing even when you think people aren't looking, right? <laughs> yep. And then, Ben, we've got another listener who phoned in a question. Thanks to that. And for Dave from Phoenix. So let's go to the tape and let Dave ask his question. Hey, guys, this is uh, Dave in uh, Phoenix just calling you with a question. I was curious, with the demise a few years ago of uh, Wow Air and then also more recently of Norwegian across the Atlantic, I was wondering uh, what you guys thought would be if there's a future for like a low-cost carrier um, doing transatlantic service. Obviously, we're probably a, at least a, a few months, if not probably a few years from, uh, you know, transatlantic service being what it used to be in terms of uh, – of passenger loads and all that, but I think a lot of things have changed um, with the introduction of narrow bodies that can do transatlantic service, at least to Western Europe from the U.S., um, and also the fact that um, low-cost carriers tend to, uh, as a business model, my understanding is, uh, be able to survive a little bit more easily with that business traffic that so heavily subsidizes, uh, you know, transatlantic service for the majors. So I was just wondering if that sort of thing might offer a competitive advantage to a new entrant in the uh, Atlantic market that maybe Norwegian or WOW or some of those other folks didn't quite have. Thanks a lot. Love the show. Bye. Great question, Dave. You know, I used to be on the board of WOW Air for a little while, since you mentioned WOW. I left that company in part because I was really bothered by the fact that they weren't sort of willing to do what it took to make that company work well. Most importantly, they had bought a wide-body airplane, the A330, which is a great airplane, by the way, but for the Iceland market was a bit too big, and that really hurt them. In general, long-haul, low-cost airlines are really challenged because even cost-inefficient airlines when they're flying a big airplane, long distances have pretty low costs. Airlines measure costs usually as cost per available seat mile or available seat kilometer, based on where, depending on where you are in the world. And you create a lot of seat miles when you fly a big airplane a long distance. So even if your costs are high, you can get them low. Low-cost airlines tend to sort of be able to charge lower fares and win versus higher cost airlines because they can get a big cost advantage. It's hard to get a big cost advantage when you're flying really long haul. And airlines like WOW saw that when they brought in a wide body, when they were only flying the A321, they made it work a little better. Norwegian with their 787s, 
Now there's this new airline that's trying to restart as the new Norwegian with the 787s. I think it's just tough to be a long haul, low fare airline and be successful. The other thing I would say is that low cost airlines, in almost all cases, ask their customers indirectly, if not directly, to accept some compromises. I mean, at Southwest, you don't get to pick where you sit unless you board early enough, you can choose what's left. You know, they don't tend to have as many nice features on board or treatment in the airport or maybe even with the new frontier seats, there's still a lot of seats on the airplane, right? And so those things are all acceptable if you're flying two to three, maybe even four hours. But if you're flying eight, 10 hours, all of a sudden only being able to buy a cold sandwich might not be the right thing. And that seat, which you can live with, with the pitch and everything for a couple hours on a 10 hour flight, can you really get to sleep in that? And so my point is that the the simplicity of low cost airlines starts to become a bit of a challenge the longer you go. So you have the challenges with the product and the fact that you can't get your costs low enough compared to other airlines because their costs are pretty low when they fly long haul. I really think though that's the challenge with airlines like WOW was and like Norwegian was and why I wouldn't be too optimistic about the reemergence of an airline that that was its whole business flying long haul low cost. Yeah, I mean, I think the track record of this makes the answer kind of short, which is no, Dave. <laughs> I don't think it's possible. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think there are certain ways to do it, but not in the method that anyone's done it so far, or at least in recent history. You know, versus looking at successful ultra low cost carriers that do their thing well on a short haul route. And then how do they grow from there successfully? Not too much, but how do they grow successfully from their base into something else? I mean, Alaska's not an ultra low cost carrier, but look at what they were able to do over the course of building a very stable company with a good reputation. And they were able to, you know, add the Transcon service, add the Hawaii service, um, I think other airlines can certainly kind of follow that that kind of a model where, you know, stick to your knitting and do something really, really well, and then take a more modest approach to, to grow. We're actually working on a future guest that has some experience in, in this area that it might be interesting to see what uh, he has to say about this uh, on an upcoming show. But uh, I don't want to give that away until we confirm his uh, availability. That's right, Chris. Finer Wine is next. But before we make that turn, thanks to our friends at TA Connections. Travel Alliance and Hotel Connections have come together to become TA Connections, paving the way for a new chapter in crew logistics management. Learn more at taconnections.com. That's taconnections.com, a fleet core company, the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Ben, our finer wine is from Ioana in Chicago, and it's about KLM. You seem to have a pipeline, Ben, uh, from the Midwest with flyers who have problems with European carriers. Anyway, she writes, I booked a ticket for my mom from Bucharest to Chicago. Long story short, I filled out the information 100% correctly, but somehow her first name got interchanged with her last name. 
Of course, they didn't believe me when I called and I said I bought the ticket online and I filled out the information correctly. I had to send them a screenshot via email showing that I filled out the information correctly, last name under last name, first name under first name. After 30 minutes of waiting on hold, they told me they will take care of the problem and I will receive a new ticket for my mom. 24 hours later, I received a message from them telling me I need to pay 179 euro extra if I wanted a new ticket with the correct information. Do yourself a favor and fly with a different airline. KLM is the absolute worst. Well, first of all, Ben, they're not the absolute worst, but why don't you take a <laughs> question and tell us what you think? Well, if the information is as Ioana says, then this is not a wind at all. If KLM agreed that she filled out the information correctly and they printed the ticket wrong, then of course they shouldn't charge her anymore to reissue the ticket. Like many of these, I wonder what the total background is here. And maybe in fact, um, you know, it's interesting that she had that screenshot, I guess, from the email that I guess that would show it the confirmation. But it just seems odd to me that that 179 euro sounds like it's uh, some sort of change fee or something like that, that wasn't really the ticket price, but was a cost for reissuing the ticket. Maybe if you had a lost ticket or something like that, they might do it that way. But the real point here is if they agreed with her, that she had filled it out correctly and they imprinted it wrong, they of course shouldn't have charged her that extra amount. Yeah, I I had the same reaction to her her letter, but I also remember when I was at Orbitz, we had technology where we could go back in and replicate the keystrokes and either prove to the customer, yes, you did it right, or no, you didn't do it. So I don't know if KLM has that same capability, but they seem to have agreed that they made a mistake and then took a 180 so i didn't uh didn't understand so let's give her a fine i hope she got her mother's uh, ticket resolved and she got her here from from bucharest so as we get ready to wrap for the week uh, a reminder to listeners that we love your feedback comments and questions our new phone number is 202-964-0177 or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com we're available on all the major podcast platforms, or you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential Podcast. Chris, I'd like to close with my shout out to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Now, why would I be making a shout out to a city? Well, first of all, Myrtle Beach is a great place to take families, of course. Um, and it's a great place to go golfing. But they just got a whopping amount of new service from Southwest Airlines, who opened that city with service to like 10 different places. Working in the airline industry for a long time, I've often been pitched by airports about, here's why you should fly to our airport. And you know our airport really needs your airline and more service and competition. And that generally falls on I wouldn't say deaf ears, but at least ambivalent ears when airports make those pitches. But somehow the city of uh, Myrtle Beach and Southwest got together, and it's great for that city to be getting that service. It's going to put some pressure on Spirit Airlines, who's long been a big operator there and provided a lot of the unique service at that airport. But my shout out goes to a, an airport who got a really good, really good um, operation coming to their airport with just an amazing amount of new service um, on a single announcement. 
And along those lines of Ben, my shout out is to Bozeman, Montana. We keep talking about how leisure travel is king right now, as you just pointed out with Myrtle Beach. As this pandemic turns travel patterns on its head, Bozeman Yellowstone Airport has attracted a new carrier, also Southwest Airlines, and new nonstop service to LAX, Washington, Reagan, and New York GFK. Not bad for a city of less than 50,000 people and fewer than 1,000 grizzly bears. So with that, thanks for joining us on this week's Airlines Confidential. Have a good week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.